Hello and welcome back to the Demystifying Media Podcast. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor of Journalism at the University of Oregon, and today we're going to be talking about opinion writing and how to inject the personal in features, commentary, criticism and essays. To help us discuss this, I'm joined in the studio today by Erin Aubrey Kaplan, a Los Angeles journalist and columnist who has written about African-American political, personal and cultural matters since 1992. She's a contributing writer to the New York Times, Politico and Los Angeles Times op-ed pages, and from 2005 to 2007 was a weekly opinion columnist for the LA Times, the first black weekly opinion columnist in the paper's history. She's contributed to many anthologies and is the author of two books, Black Talk, Blue Thoughts and Walking the Color Line, Dispatches from a Black Journalista, and I Heart Obama, an exploration of the cultural and personal meaning of the first black American president, which was published in 2016 by Four Edge. Erin holds a BA in English and an MFA in Theatre Arts from UCLA, and she's been with us here on campus for the last few days. Erin, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Damien, it's great to be here. Thank you. So, um, first of all, let's kind of go go back to the beginning, if yeah. we may. And I'm, I'm curious if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into journalism and how you decided that opinion writing was really the beat for you. Okay, well, I started out life not as a journalist at all, not thinking about it. I wanted to be a writer. I was a kid who read a lot. I loved books. I loved reading. I loved stories. Um, and I loved poetry, um, which I think is still my favorite form of of writing and literature. But so that's, I wanted to be a poet, a novelist, something like that. And so um, that's hence the English major. Um, but I wasn't quite sure what direction to go in after that. So I was interested in theater. And so I, I did a master's in, in theater, in acting specifically. And um, two, one thing happened during that time that, that, that led me to writing and to journalism. And that was um, an experience I had as a graduate student. I was, the, the, perform, the theater degree was mostly performance, but there was an academic component. So I had to write term papers about theater history and things like that, which I actually enjoyed, include me in as to what I really shouldn't be doing. So one term I turned in my paper, about 20 pages or so about um, classical Spanish theater. Anyway, the professor called me to his office and told me, Miss Aubrey, I cannot grade this paper. You did not write this paper. And I was stunned and I didn't know what that, what he was referring to. Long story short, he felt it was such a such a well-written paper that um, someone like me could not have written that, could not have conceived of it and written it. And it was kind of a shock to realize what he was saying. And anyway, that experience told me two things. One, I was a pretty good writer, although I was told, in the, told that in a very backhanded way. Um, and that two, it, it seemed somehow important that that I continue to write and to and to be that person who wasn't supposed to be any good, you know? Right. I felt that very strongly. And that assumption was just made on the fact that you were a young black woman. A young black person. Uh, well, I'm just. Ba ba he, he said that um, I didn't speak very well, therefore I couldn't have written it, which wasn't true. Mm -hmm. I don't speak poorly. We had this discussion before we started this, right? Um, and he just, that's all. That's the only thing he said. And um, the ironic thing was I was the only student in the cohort who even had a background in writing. None of the rest did not. And that I've been doing papers like this for quite a while. It was not a new thing for me. But none of, not, none of that was persuasive to him. He just kept saying, you didn't write this. And the you got very large, right? It wasn't just me. It was all the you out there. You people don't, it was you people. So I, from that, I took, like I said, I took um, 
the fact that I was a pretty good, so good that apparently um, I was beyond professional. Who knew? And the second thing was, again, that I felt like I need to keep going and I need to somehow make this more public or make it more, make it uh, matter more. Or So fortunately at the time, I had a, this was great timing. A friend of mine who was a staff writer at the LA Times, who also had written for uh, Time Magazine, and he was a seasoned journalist. I knew him through a, a mutual friend, and he said he had started his own publication that covered events in the black community in Los Angeles. And he said, why don't you come and work for, with me? And I said, you know, journalism, I respect journalism. I read it. But to me, it felt like a business, a job, not creative. Um, even though I did want to make my writing more public, I still hadn't quite connected those dots. So I, he said, well, just just trust me on this. Because he had seen my writing and, um, um, like my professor, felt I was very good. But unlike the professor... Attributed the talent to me, yes. Right. <laughs> so I, I said, okay, so for five years, I worked on this independent paper called Accent LA, and um, I learned how to be a journalist. My friend Ed taught me how, you know, he taught me reporting skills, uh, research skills. Uh, he taught me how, basically, you know, how to write an 800-word piece. Um, he taught me structure. He taught me how to be edited um, and how to not, you know, how that is really a negotiation that, you know, you just have to kind of learn. Um, and so by 1992, um, I was pretty, you know, I was, I had some, I had a pretty good um, uh, experience. And then 992, this great civic unrest hit Los Angeles. There was a great, suddenly a great crisis of journalism. There was not, a, there were not enough people reporting on what was going on in the and streets of Los Angeles. And these are the, just to be clear, these are the Rodney King riots, yes. related riots. Yes, these are what commonly referred to as riots, right. So, so the LA Times suddenly kept, needed people who knew com communities to come write for them. So I was fortunate, just, you know, fortunate timing. I was able to start at a, um, at a big paper like that. And that's where I got started. And I really, that's where I really got in the rhythm of, uh, of, of writing about places I knew, people I knew, um, not just personally, but, you know, communally. And I just really had this for the beginning. I had this, 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 this attitude that, that this is part of my life. This is me. This is not just the community or these abstractions. This was mattered to me. So I think that's where the my my um, I kind of just naturally lean towards opinion writing, mm -hmm. you know. And was it? And as you were beginning that kind of journey and kind of leaning more more into mm -hmm. opinion writing, mm -hmm. how easy was it for you to find your voice with that? You know, um, I don't know. Not very hard. Well, in the five years I was working on in Accent LA, the independent paper, I wrote in many forms. I wrote some some some. I wrote arts reviews. I wrote um, some news. I and I wrote. I started to dabble in opinion. My mentor Ed kind of encouraged me. Like I would be talking about something. Like for example, I worked on my father's campaign. He was running for a school board, and I mentioned to Ed how difficult it was to convince people of of things, and and how terrified I was to actually knock on doors. And he said, "You know, you ought to write about that." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah." There's some. You know, he saw the bigger kind of, you know, resonance of working in a political campaign, even at that level. Mm -hmm. So I wrote about that. And I, and what I, you know, so it ended up being a piece about, about working in a campaign, kind of personal, like, you know, trying to stand up for my father, who, which I would always do, but I was personally terrified because it's just not in me to go door to door. And, you know, also the fact I 
I believed very much in him, and he was the most principled man I ever met, and so that was important to me. So there are a lot of, I, I, I understood as I wrote that piece that there are more things to talk about than just the terror of, you know, of overcoming my shyness and trying, you know, and and campaigning. Right. I think being on the phone was worse. But anyway, so I started to understand that I could actually speak to a lot of issues by grounding it in an experience, personal experience. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious, it's really interesting when you say you felt kind of shy about knocking mm -hmm. on doors or potentially using the phone, which might seem contradictory for somebody who'd been uh, a theatre student. And I know you've mentioned in some of the classes you wanted to be an actor yes. kind of at one point. But of course, as an actor, you're putting on a persona. So did you also feel that in your writing, is that also the case or, or, or is really the goal to present your authentic self? That's a really good question. It's almost existential. Um, yes, um, I think... And I've heard many actors say this, and it's probably true. Many actors will say they were essentially shy and they're acting in order to overcome that or to be someone else. I would say that I'm not trying to be someone else. No, you're right. I'm trying to actually get to that authentic self. But being, you know, writing is a very artificial process. You're, con you're constantly editing and what you put on the page is only a piece of yourself. It, it is never just, you know, entirely you. You're making choices with words and and the things you tell. So so it's kind of this interesting balance. It is kind of a persona, but it is a persona that that is created from, it is me. It's just not the me you see in the flesh because it's just not possible to be right. that. It's like a, it's a part of your personality. It's a part of my personality yeah. and maybe the most, you know, um, it's the part that thinks about things like racism and big issues like that. But there's lots of parts of me that are not that. Right. And sometimes they make those parts of me make their way into my columns too, mm -hmm. or pieces I write. Um, but uh, yeah, that it, but the, the, the study, the training and performance has helped me um, kind of develop a thick skin, I guess. Um, Cause I, I mean, performance sounds like, sounds artificial, like you're making things up or you're not authentic, but, but it's helped me be that opinion columnist. Right. Um, it's helped me step into that when, when I would have preferred not to. Well, and we've we've talked about this at various points during the course of the week. And I think it's a really important issue for us to to raise that mm. how journalists cope with pushback mm. is important, that we know that journalists get attacked much more um, now kind of uh, in an online age than we than we did before. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly true if you're writing about contentious topics and you often are. It's particularly true if you are a person of color and it's particularly true if you are a woman. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, you hit all three of those <laughs> criteria. So, um, you know, how do you navigate that issue and what advice would you have for the next generation of students who, who and journalists who are going to, you know, probably encounter this from, from day one? And, and, I, and I'm not sure that we equip them with enough of the knowledge to both expect that this is going to happen and then help them to understand how to navigate it. That's a really good question. That's been that's a fairly recent development too. I would say. I mean, back I feel like in the Stone Age now, in the '90s, when when I started newspapers, uh, if you had a beef about something, you wrote a letter to the editor, right, and you sent it off, and they would pick and choose which letters to print, and you know that was sort of the extent of the feedback. Now it's much much as you know, it's much different. There's a people. Not only do you get floods of feedback, but you it's very direct. Um, comes from everywhere, and people really feel like they're talking to you. Like there's no, there's not the the editor editing letters anymore, right? There's just people responding, 
generally sometimes off the top of their head. Um, and so it has been kind of alarming, frankly. And, um, um, you know, but I have always, since I started writing opinion, I've always gotten um, um, nasty comments. Um, but now um, I, it, they are just um, much more vitriolic mm-hmm. to the point where I really don't read much, frankly, anymore, unless someone tells me, oh, you should, you know, someone else who's read something I've written and said, you know, these comments are thoughtful. You should read them. I will. But it's frankly a little bit, it's, it's, I'm not afraid, but it's just disheartening to me. Um, very often when you read comments that are, you know, really furious or vitriolic, you, you can see the person didn't read what you wrote. Right. They're reacting to one word or, or headline or something that sets them off like um, racism or, or federal government or <laughs> any, any, or any num- the police or, or yes, yeah. whatever. Um, so, um, I mean, perhaps they read the piece, but 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 it's just not it's not they are not subtle responses. So, but then amidst all that, often I get very thoughtful responses. Not not nearly as many, but things that really make me sit up and pay attention to the fact that someone totally unlike me, um, who I assume would have the opposite reaction to something I wrote, would say, you know what, I hadn't thought about it that way, mm. and that is really encouraging. And I think there are far more of those people than we know. Right. And you've also talked about the fact that that the negative responses tend to be disproportionate because you don't tend to hear from people if they agree with you or even if they necessarily you've made them think about an issue in a a different way. It tends to be the people who are outraged. Yes, I think I think that's just human nature. If you're satisfied with something, you're not motivated to go pound out a letter or write, you know, you just go away satisfied. Yeah. Um, And so. um, so it's, yeah, it's a disproportionate response. Um, so I try not to overread things into it, but it is, it can, these days especially, it's quite alarming how, um, how furious people are to the point where the New York Times actually said to me, look, you know, um, we're going to give you, there's some service they have where they can just sort of protect you from, from um, people who want to who want to attack you some kind of way, I can't remember the name of the service, but they that's what they have for when comments get a little start going off the rails. They have a procedure now for that, and it's just kind of a sad statement of where we are. Um, and also, what's what's disconcerting is that you know we all know on the internet you can find someone very easily. You can find out where they live. Um, that nothing, that privacy is is kind of a thing of the past, which is a whole other discussion, but. You know, it, it can be disconcerting, but I just try not to think too much about that. Um, let's just say so far, so good. Right. <laughs> Long may that continue, obviously. Yeah. Um, right. Just going back to some of the kind of the personal nature of your of your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, some of, I'm going to highlight a couple of examples of some of the things that you're perhaps kind of best known for. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of your best known pieces, uh, The Butt, mm-hmm. uh, an essay for the LA Weekly, mm-hmm. which... Um, and I'm, this is how you've described it as examines the deep social and psychological ramifications of having a pronounced backside typical of a black woman. Mm-hmm. And then another piece for the weekly Blue Like Me, which explored the modern connections between your own long battle with depression, family mm-hmm. history and a still distressing state of race. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious whether those pieces were harder to write because they were so, so personal um, or whether you actually think it's essential for an opinion writer to inject an element of of self and and, and some of those um, kind of vulnerabilities and to share that with their audience. 
well, I think you have to get very personal with something like the butt, which was about my own body. Well, that's where it started. Which and you're also the body model for the story, I, was, I believe. Which that's a whole other interesting story. I, I deeply affected me in a way I didn't think I would be. But <laughs> anyway, and that wasn't a story, by the way. I was just chatting with my editor and mentioning something like, uh, you know, this is an ongoing pet peeve. Oh, you know, these clothes don't fit. And, you know, I got to do something about my butt. She goes, you should do a story about that. I said, that's even I said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. I'm not doing that. And then but she started to point out to me, well, here's what you said about it. And she, she'd sort of been listening to me talk about this. And she happened to be white and I'm black. But she was saying, you know, you've said this, you said that. And I think this could all be a very interesting kind of exploration about, about, you know, self-image and, and also just, a broad, you know, the image of black people, period. And I thought, well, I'll just see what's there. I didn't, I just started to write, to just write down what I, what I thought. I started to explore my own feelings. And, and um, pretty soon I had an essay going. <laughs> but I would not have, that's something someone had to point out to me. And I started, it was actually at that point that I started to think, what else can I write about? Things that I sort of toss off or don't think are important that really have ramifications that, that really, if I focus on them, um, can be really affecting pieces. And uh, uh, that was kind of a turning point, actually. I'm glad you brought that piece up. So the piece on depression, which is kind of the opposite tone, um, was something that was something I mean, the, the butt was kind of fun to do because it was sort of a, I, I just assumed my fabulous persona and, you know, and kind of my devil may care persona. <laughs> Um, but the depression was that was that was harder because it's not something you want to necessarily reveal. It, it seemed so at the time. That was twenty years ago. Now it's, it seems less. There's less stigma about it. Sure, there still is, but it, but it's yeah. not, not as bad as it but, was. But at the time, it seemed um, I hadn't thought about writing about that either until it got kind of critical. Mm-hmm. And I think I start out the story by saying there was a moment where just everything ground to a halt. So that's where I started. Mm-hmm. And that I already had in mind because I've been struggling with not just depression, but with the right to talk about it, to feel it. I, I had this, this, you know, all black people have this history of struggle. And depression is just simply not allowed. It doesn't even make any sense. I mean, I know it sounds silly to say, but was Harriet Tubman depressed? You know, was, was Frederick Douglass depressed? I mean, you don't even ask those questions. Mm. But yet I felt I was depressed. So I was str- there was a tension between... You know, I was feeling um, um, like I was letting some something, someone, something and someone down. So I started to explore that, and that's where that piece came from. Right. And, and and one of the things I've sort of taken away from some of the conversations I've seen you you having this week is that it feels as if almost with a lot of your writing, there's an element of dare I say almost like therapy with mm. the or or that you are feeling your way through an issue and how you feel about it. like you don't necessarily know how a piece is going to end up because it's through that creative process that you develop uh, and firm up a lot of your own own ideas on topics. Is that a fair That is very, that was very well said. Um, and not just because you have a British accent. <laughs> it always helps. <laughs> no, but that's very true. It is an exploration. And I always tell, I've taught writing in the past. And uh, I taught, I always say that, you know, the term essay is the French word for trying, essayé doesn't mean to figure, it means to just explore. It doesn't mean you figured anything out. And I really feel that way uh, often when I start to write a piece. I don't, even a short piece, um, I don't know exactly where I'm going or how, you know, I feel until I start writing it. 
And does that make it hard to pitch to an editor because you don't necessarily know? You know what? what I'm fortunate. The editors that I pitch to tend to know what. Tend to know. Yeah, they'll say, "Well, that that's enough. That sounds go go off and write it." In fact, I just pitched something very you know like that to the New York Times, thinking, "Oh, it's too small," but they but they said, "Oh, that sounds good," and they've already made it bigger in their minds. So um, it doesn't work for everything, though. It depends. Um, That. The personal piece, I would not pitch to Politico. Um, it doesn't fit. Um, I was, although it seems like every piece I write, whether it's you know from the top down, so it's about a big matter, always ends up somehow being personal for me. So I don't even I don't worry about that so much. But um, uh, sort of the essay, the really the real essay type pieces, um, I I really don't think that anything is off the table. Um, not not everything makes it. To, you know, I don't write about everything, but I've just learned to pay attention to the things that that are important to me. And um, that's your starting point for stories is sort of like your reaction to things. Yes, or, things like or just so, something I've considered a long time yeah. that feel, okay, now's the time to write about it. Right, and you, you gave an, you've given an example earlier on this week about a piece you wrote about gentrification Yes, in Inglewood, which is the part of Los yes. Angeles where you, where you live. Can you just say a little bit more about, about that piece and, oh. how, and, and the sort of germination of it? Because I think it's a great mm-hmm. example that kind of brings together all the things you've just, just talked yes, about. Yes, that, well, that, that was an easy one in terms of where to start. I, I, um, and it's interesting, the, the gentrification, of course, is a big issue in many American cities in Los Angeles, uh, which is getting very expensive. And, 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 I, and but you know, gentrification is one of those issues. It's a kind of abs- an abstraction. It's something people discuss and debate, but but no one talks about actually what it's like to live, like what it means on the ground. So one day I was looking out of my window and I have on my lawn one of those little, uh, called a little lending library. So a bunch of books that people can come by and borrow. And I just think that's a great idea. I'd seen these little libraries in other more affluent, more white neighborhoods. And I said, well, I'm going to build one here. This will be you know, a little bit of democracy or whatever. So I had it built and um, uh, I looked out the window one morning and there was a couple perusing the books, which is wonderful, except the couple was white. So I had immediately had this reaction I did not expect to have. It was on the one hand, this is wonderful. Someone's actually using the library, which I, too, get off my lawn. I, who were, I didn't want them there. I didn't want them there. And th- and three, are there more coming? There was this, co- and four. The most interesting thing to me was I felt completely disempowered in a second. Even though I lived there, I've been living there fifteen years. I own the home, and maybe they're renting. I don't know, but I felt be- that they that that I was completely um, just my foundation shook. And I was interested in all these responses. Um, I didn't end up doing anything. They just kept walking. I just was still peering out of the window. But I wanted to sit down and, and explore, like, why did I feel all that? I mean, I know what gentrification is. I know it's disempowering and displacing. And these are all just ideas, right? But what's more interesting is how they actually play out in your life. I find that, and I find that more, I don't know, illuminating and more, uh, and it leads you to different different things. So I decided to tell on myself, you know, um, and so I, that's where that came from. And it led to, you know, um, uh, thoughts about, you know, historical erasure and displacement and, um, and how that's never been solved. And, and it led to the bigger, the biggest thought was this problem of belonging, of not feeling quite, ever feeling that way, no matter how long you've lived somewhere or how much stake you, ha- you think you have somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so that's where that came from. And that got a lot, a lot of furious um, feedback. Right. Um, just as a coda. Um, and from across the spectrum of... Uh, I think so. Well, mostly white people. Uh, although it kind of surprised me. It's not the most controversial thing I've ever written. I I didn't think, but but apparently touched a nerve. And people basically said that I was being the oppressor, that I was I was um, being a racist, which, you know, it makes me think, OK, they, they really didn't read the piece. But anyway, that's that's the piece that 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 got so much vitriol that The New York Times uh, um, offered me the service where they sort of screened out bad actors who were right. trying to get a hold of me. Well, and you also mentioned that someone sent you a box of books for the library. Oh, yes, that's interesting. But you don't know how they found found your address. I'm assuming yeah, it was a nice gesture, but to be honest with you, I haven't opened them yet because yeah. suddenly I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, uh, it came from someone I don't know, from a place I don't know. I don't know where anyone lives. And while I appreciate it, it, it I have to say I was a little paranoid. Understandably so, understandably <laughs> so. And then you mentioned about sort of a sense of belonging in the context of that, yes. that story, but I think that's also an issue that we're seeing in a lot of newsrooms for people from uh, different minority communities. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit um, about that? I mean, I think your experience with the Los Angeles Times is interesting in terms of both the time at which they recruited you, mm -hmm. the fact that, as we, we've talked about, that the Los Angeles Times and other publications have, have kind of apologized for their racist past in terms of, mm -hmm. of coverage, but also mm -hmm. we still have a very long way to go in terms of ensuring that newsrooms look like the communities that they are reporting on. Yes, you're right about that. Um, it's great that everyone's had this come to Jesus moment with uh, their newsrooms. The LA Times did a long series about that, about all their past wrongs. Um, confession's good for the soul, I guess. But I mean, so now... Um, but the problem now, I was saying this to someone else, the, pro the real overarching problem is is finance, finances. Um, we've seen just so many papers um, uh, downsize or disappear, collapse, consolidate, that that there's not the, um, or this is the excuse they may give, but there's just not the money to hire, to hire reporters, let alone reporters of color, which feels like, you know, a luxury, right? But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be considered that way, no. right? But it is. And then the other part is, you know, the the the, the people of color who are on staff or part of an organization, they're, they're always expected, of course, to address the issues of that ethnic group. I have no problem speaking, well, speaking for, and I put that in quotes, speaking for, or speak, let's say speaking to, not for, speaking to issues, um, uh, pr concerns, crises important to black people. That is something I am I, honored to do. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of media organizations, that's all they want you to do. And they don't see you as, as um, qualified to do anything else or to talk about anything else. Um, and that's, that's something that's really embedded. I had to really, even when I think about Writing, say, uh, um, about um, the invasion of Ukraine, for example, I think, well, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. Now, I, you know, I don't write about foreign affairs, but at the same time, you know, everyone has a right to talk about things important to the country, right? And I have to keep saying that aloud to myself because it doesn't feel there's not a lot of precedent for that. It reminds me, you know, Martin Luther King died very unpopular um, because he, he, he started to criticize the Vietnam War. And and many people got very angry and said, "Stay in your lane. You're you're about civil rights, um, and this is not what you're about." Even black people told him, "You're going to lose your standing 
if you don't just stick to, you know, the um, your, uh, you know, your area of expertise. And he just, you know, he didn't he didn't go for that. And it made him extremely unpopular in this country. Um, now we remember him very fondly or most of us do. But 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 what's forgotten is that he he you know, his position on the war was was not just unpopular because many people against the war that was, you know, they got blowback, but because he was black and and upfront and he used his his pulpit for that, people said, You don't have the right to do that. And I don't I realize that's not true. But we don't have a history, we don't have a, a tradition of involving everyone in these very important matters that goes beyond color. Right. But uh, but I think it's also an issue we see sort of time and time again in newsrooms, uh, particularly, for example, with migrant communities, that if you are mm-hmm. uh, originally from that community, the expectation is that's your beat. That's your beat. And it's incredibly insulting and short-sighted. And I think this is also one of the reasons why we see a lot of burnout and people leaving, because it, not only is it short-sighted in terms of people's journalistic abilities, yeah. it's exhausting to just only be, because in most of those yeah. cases, you're only reporting on tragedy and negative stories you know that is the lens well, through which right. those communities are all too often seen true although the opportunity you do have is to change that yes that's that's the good thing um i was sent out in 92 of course you know we already the calamity had happened so i felt my job was to was to report on all the on all the uh, smaller things or the things that just never got never got into the news that weren't news because it wasn't crime because it wasn't poverty because it wasn't gangs there was a lot, you know, I, I knew what could, there was a lot to be written about. So that they left that to me. It, not all of it got through, but the point is I was there to, to, to do that. And I was happy to do that, actually. As part of that process, it, um, you've also, I think it's also important for people to find like good editors, good mentors, other people to I- inspire them. How, how important has that been to you? I mean, you've talked a lot about the role that Ed played your mentor at Accent LA and also mm-hmm. how inspirational your father was yes. in terms of shaping your, your worldview. Right. Um, presumably that, that's been important to you. Is it also something you advise journalists to do to, to find those um, kind of pillars of light? Yes, very important for me. Maybe, you know, there's some people who are more, who just have <clears throat> more self-motivated, who perhaps would thrive without a mentor, but it was very important for me that that, that Ed intervened and 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 actually took my writing ability and made it into something I could do as as not just work but as a vocation. I didn't know how to do that. I maybe I was part of my shyness. I was too I didn't know how to make that leap. Um I hadn't I just hadn't I don't know, didn't have the wherewithal. Um because so much of us, so many of us have talent, but it's the ambition and the ambition part is just navigating those things, you know, pushing hard. I wasn't really inclined to do that. It's, I, I go back to my piece about not wanting to knock on doors, <laughs> right? It was not in my natural makeup. But someone, it was very important, someone else saw my potential and encouraged me. And I remember probably the most um, the most um, memorable thing, Ed, advice Ed gave me. When I went to the LA Times uh, in 92, so, you know, I went from this very small publication. It was very reputable, but, but small. And suddenly I was going to this very big newsroom and I said to Ed, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, I, I had this moment of doubt. And Ed just said very almost offhandedly, of course you can do it. And that's, I thought, well, okay, if he thinks so, then I can. So so it was, you know, that was extremely important for me. Um, and if, if, um, if you can have a mentor, 
uh, it's so important. Um, and Ed, you know, he was a veteran journalist, so and a veteran black journalist, so he knew the traps and he knew the he knew the um, the things to look out for, and he knew what to tell me. And that's why he started his own paper. He he knew the L.A. Times was not doing a very good job at all of covering um, um, a big part of the city, you know. And also, what he taught me, which is important, which is goes to what you said about minorities in the newsroom. He said, you know, these stories are big enough. You're gonna, you're gonna make you think that these, are, this is small and it's off to the side. And but he said this is very central. And we're now we're understanding that now we use the centers become a verb. We're centering Black history because guess what? It is American history. What a surprise! I mean, so a lot of times, you know, we're we're, we're conditioned to believe these are all these are small stories. They are not, and they're not, you know, they're not um, discreet little one-off, you know, nice little fables or something. They are important for on their own terms, but also um, they matter more than what we're led to believe. So there's that, you know, there is that. And and I think that lends itself to something you were also saying earlier about having confidence in your own voice and of your mm-hmm. own stories, that mm-hmm. those things matter, these stories matter. And of course, now more than ever, if you are unhappy with how things have been covered, it's easier than, than ever to start your own publication yes and, and I think that's also a great thing yes it's it's when we when Ed started you know it was 87 which a million years ago it was much different you had to have space you had to have um of course it was print you know printing press yeah, printing <laughs> all these press, kinds of things all yeah. that you know we had to have we had to have uh, advertising which I guess you know so so it's it's there's a lot of obstacles out of the way with that now. I, I still like a printed paper, but but you can you can, it, it's just much easier to set up a publication now. So are you so just to kind of wrap up, are you optimistic for the future for despite the economic challenges for, mm-hmm. um, for journalism? I know you've talked a bit about the kind of country being at a real kind of crossroads now, yeah. but but overwhelmingly, do you lean more towards the side of hope or despair? Oh my goodness. What is today? Friday? Today, yeah. optimism today. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll come back tomorrow. I, I would say, no, I would say optimism because I just really believe that, that there's just, you can't kill off journalism. You, you, no matter, even if it has no money, I just think it's too necessary. And I think people are very inclined to it. I think uh, being here this week really reminds me how interested people still are in, in doing it. Um, and we need it for, we need to have it for a healthy republic, but, but I'm really encouraged to see um, how deeply interested uh, young people are. You know, you keep you hear things like, you know, journalism. Not journalism. Journalism is is on the wane. Newspapers are dead. Nobody reads them, et cetera, et cetera. But I, you know, that's not. That's and then you see it's not true. Um, or you see examples of it not being true, and you know, it just realigns me, and makes me think. Well, of course, it's going to go on. It has to. It's the kind of thing that, you know. You can't stamp out. And the fact, as we've seen, the more you try to stamp out a free press, the more it comes back, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's, it's things beyond money. Well, that seems like a, a good optimistic note for us to uh, <laughs> draw our conversation to uh, a, a close today. Erin, um, thank you so much for joining us both for this podcast and also on campus over the uh, past few days. Um, do keep an eye out for materials from Erin's visit to the University of Oregon, which you can find on our website, demystifying.uoregon.edu. That includes our YouTube channel and wherever you found this podcast. In the meantime, it just remains for me to thank one more time our guest today, Erin will be captain And until next time, thanks for listening.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out another from the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. The Listener's Podcast is a show about the craft and power of listening. We talk with media and communication experts, thought leaders, doers and innovators whose ideas can amplify the quality of our dialogue and interactions. Subscribe to the show anywhere where you find your other favourite podcasts and visit listenerspodcast.com to go deeper with each of our episode's show notes. Thanks for listening.